The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. In 2003, Martha Stewart was indicted on charges of insider trading stemming from her sale of stock in a company called Mclone. She was later convicted and served five months in a federal prison. Ms. Stewart's case was one of the highest profile cases of insider trading, a, trade which many, a term which many of us have heard, but which we probably know little about seeing as most of us will never have inside information on a major corporation. We might know that insider trading is related to ensuring the integrity of financial markets, but experts have described our nation's insider trading laws as irrational and a mess. Beyond this, many experts are concerned that people who are subject to these laws may have no clear idea whether they're violating the laws when they're engaging in their activities. What is bad about insider trading to begin with? And how have the laws become so convoluted? And what might be done to make the laws more effective and fairer? Joining me today on the show is an expert on insider trading, Kevin Douglas. He's a professor of law at Michigan State University. Professor Douglas graduated with degrees, with bachelor's and MBA degrees from Florida A&M, and then later earned a law degree from Stanford University in 2013. Professor Douglas has also practiced law in Texas and then was a visiting professor at uh, George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. So he brings both some ex uh, experience from the business world as well as research expertise to bear on this topic. Welcome to eConversations, Kevin. Hey, Dan, thank you so much for having me here. So before we get started, uh, uh, tell, why don't you tell us a little bit about your uh, background and, and uh, how you got to, to Michigan State? Sure, um, before even getting to law school, um, I graduated from Florida A&M with the MBA, as you said. I did mutual fund accounting for a brief period of time um, before going to law school. And after law school, um, I, had a pra I had a practice and uh, didn't have a practice, but I was an attorney, junior attorney in a practice that focused on serving um, corporate clients in a transactional sense. So instead of litigating disputes, we helped people to form deals like mergers and acquisitions and spinoffs. We also helped them to with um, periodic disclosures that had to be made to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, the interesting part of me transitioning, um, at some point I left to try and pursue an academic career um, and didn't intend necessarily to focus on insider trading as much as I have in my scholarship to this point. But one of the things that's been interesting is, you know, as I learned both um, more material so that I could effectively teach students securities regulation, um, there was this wealth of the uh, securities law that I didn't uh, pay attention to because every practice can be really specific. But more than that, um, I was shocked at the way in which courts defined what was wrong with insider trading. I'd, I had heard the term my entire life. Um, I, it, it came up occasionally as advice we had to give the clients, but it uh, had never been clear that we were accusing certain employees and other insiders of essentially breaching a fiduciary obligation that they had to the companies they worked for um, by using information uh, without the consent of the information owner, which is either usually their employer or some other party um, with a superior claim to the information. 
Um, so that was a, a shocking thing. And, and, and because it was shocking to me who, uh, who spent a little bit of time in practice and a little bit of time dealing with securities regulation as a professional and as teaching it, I'm confident that the average person doesn't know why we, you know, the justification that, that courts provide as to why we put people in jail for insider trading. So, all right, so let, let, let's get started here. And we probably need to start by, you know, starting at the beginning with the, you have in your research, you've laid out like three different sort of ways in which somebody might be uh, violating insider trading. And, and so why don't you, why don't we start with those? Because I think that would provide a good place to, to you know, start getting into this topic. Yeah, I want to give three examples. Um, there are three types of cases that prosecutors and plaintiffs will bring um, where they make claims that the defendant has engaged in insider trading. And I think the easiest way to think about it um, is with these three hypotheticals. Imagine the CEO of McDonald's um, in the first hypo, he's going to buy McDonald's stock ahead of the announcement of some positive information. And it's information he received because he's the CEO of McDonald's. Um, courts are going to say that if he does this without first disclosing to the market at large this positive information, that he's um, engaging in insider trading by making a personal use of information that was intended only for the corporate benefit, and he's therefore breached his duties of trust and loyalty both to the corporation and to his shareholders. Okay. And they say that fairness requires that he disclose this information to the public at large before trading. Um, in the second hypothetical, you can imagine like, still our CEO of McDonald's, but instead he buys Burger King stock ahead of the announcement that McDonald's Corporation is going to make some kind of a tender offer for Burger King, meaning they're going to offer to pay some premium over the average market price over the last few days for maybe some percentage of the outstanding voting stock, 50%, 80%, something. Mm -hmm. um, when that happens, when people make those kinds of offers, the stock price of the target company usually moves in the direction of the offer that's being made. So if he buys the stock ahead of the announcement, um, he's gonna be able to take advantage of the price increase that happens when the information goes out. Courts say that when the if an insider does something like that, he has essentially defrauded his employer out of the exclusive use of their confidential business information. Okay. And in order to avoid liability for insider trading, he has to disclose to his employer his intention to buy the target company stock before he buys the target company stock. And, right. um, the, and, and it, just ahead. a second here for you to jump in. So when you, you earlier were using the term fiduciary uh, duty, and, and so the, uh, uh, the CEO in this case would have that, well, my understanding would, would probably have that duty in that case. He's a uh, uh, he has that duty toward the, the the company itself, right? That's right. Um, in the in the second case where he's buying Burger King stock, he's recognized as having a fiduciary obligation only to the company itself and breaching that uh, obligation by um, using the company's confidential business information for a personal benefit. Okay. Now the truth is, any employee in the world, whether you're a CEO, a, a director, or a janitor, every employee has fiduciary obligations to their employer. And that simply means that you are, the most important part of that is the idea that you're supposed to use your employer's assets for the sole benefit of the employer. And so if you're using confidential business information, which is kind of like using the company's trade secret to generate your own personal profits in securities markets, it's like you've uh, engaged in what we call unjust enrichment. And the only way you usually avoid that in the law is by obtaining the informed consent of the principal before you essentially execute the transaction that gives you a personal benefit. So the principal or the business owner has to have a full understanding of the 
pros and cons of allowing you to engage in that trade so that they can give so they can decide where the benefit or the value of the asset goes since they are the ones who are supposed to uh, receive the exclusive benefit of the fiduciary relationship. Okay. Um, so, the, so the third one. Yeah. Oh. Um, the third one is in, you can imagine a, a scenario in which instead of the CEO of uh, McDonald's buying the stock himself based on of, of Burger King, based on the, his knowledge that um, his corporation is going to stage a takeover of Burger King, instead imagine that he uh, gives that information to his second cousin and tells his second cousin about the upcoming um, takeover attempt. And he doesn't ask his second cousin for anything in return. He just tells him, hey, you can make a lot of money if you buy Burger King stock before my company announces the takeover. Um, that's going to uh, be another way in which you can face liability for insider trading because the way the fiduciary duty of loyalty works, and that's the one he's breaching by using corporate assets for his personal benefit, is that you're you're not supposed to gain anything. Um, only the, the, the principal is supposed to be able to gain any benefit from the assets. And so if you use the assets to benefit a third party, you could you could be seen as breaching the fiduciary duty of loyalty. Well, in insider trading cases, instead of just saying you've used these assets for the benefit of a third party, they'll say you've gained this personal intangible benefit. Um, either if you accept money for the tip about the upcoming deal, they'll see that as a personal gain uh, through the use of the company's information. But also if you were to uh, gift it to a family or a friend, the courts might say that, hey, you receive this intangible benefit um, that comes from helping out family members and friends um, and that the law requires, again, informed consent before that can be acceptable, but now there are actually some uh, follow-on laws that might prevent even informed consent from operating and cleansing the thing. And that's kind of what makes the law uh, a bit confusing, but we can go into that in a second. And it was been this third category there that Martha Stewart sort of ran afoul of because she didn't, you know, she didn't actually even work for that company uh, you know, whose stock she was trying to sell. Uh, but uh, she heard it apparently from the CEO or maybe a, a close relative of the CEO that there was some bad news coming and, and attempted to sell, or was alleged to have sold that stock to avoid a, a, a loss. Yeah, right. and Martha Stewart's case, like a lot of the more prominent cases, is kind of funny in a sense that um, she was more of a, a tippy, someone who heard the information through the grapevine, through a, a network of people who should not have shared it with her. Um, especially if they knew that she was going to trade on the information. But what she was, she was accused of insider trading, and what she actually ended up going to jail for was something like withholding information from um, enforcement officials during an investigation, something mm -hmm. to that effect. So it's um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the high-profile prosecutions of insider trading are weird in that way, in that you get charged with insider trading and a whole lot of other things, but you often end up uh, simply... Um, pleading guilty to some lesser charge to wrap the thing up. In, in all three of these uh, areas that you've talked about so far, I mean, it all comes from, as you were sort of describing, almost like uh, Ill illegal or improper use of property, and in particular here, the knowledge or in information that, of the, that the corporation has. And uh, this is why, like in some of your research, I think you've talked about like uh, bringing a property perspective uh, to insider trading, right? That's right. Um, and, and the property perspective isn't solely mine in the sense that in that second scenario we described, the CEO of McDonald's buying Burger King stock ahead of the announcement of a, an attempted takeover, courts label that the misappropriation theory of liability. So there's in that context, there's an explicit recognition that there's a property issue involved. 
In the first issue, um, the CEO buys the stock of his own company. Um, courts don't fully recognize that, or at least don't fully articulate that as being a property issue. Um, but I try to emphasize the idea that it is. Because um, as far as I can tell, all fiduciary obligations imply that, fidu that the fiduciary has control or possession of the principal's property and has to use said property for the sole benefit of the principal. So that's where the, the, the property issue comes in. Um, I think where things get confusing is in how insider trading law deviates from your general unjust enrichment theory. Yeah. Um, um, and so like in your general case, like I said, every employee, that means every single one of us is a fiduciary to our employers. And so if we take our employer's assets um, without consent to gain a personal, personal benefit, that's a breach of the duty of loyalty and it's considered unjust enrichment. Well, in every other context outside of insider trading, essentially all you really have to do is obtain what you, informed consent of the employer and you can avoid liability um, for gaining a personal benefit for the use of the employer's assets. But in the context of insider trading, you've had a bunch of um, uh, two different things happen. One, in the case law, you've had courts essentially disconnect disclosure and consent. So if disclosure is used to get informed consent, in the insider trading case law, you've had courts disconnect disclosure and consent. In that first scenario that I described for you, the CEO, when he's buying McDonald's stock, has to dis disclose to the world at large, including outside uh, uh, parties who are shareholders and non-shareholders, in order to essentially, uh, in, in order to uh, essentially inform the general public of this valuable information, and instead of obtaining the consent of the board of directors or something to that effect which to me essentially functions to equalize the information uh, that uh, most market participants have access to as opposed to functioning to protect the property rights in confidential business information, which is what happens in trade secret cases. Now, in the second uh, scenario, the, the, where the CEO is buying a Burger King stock, he's simply disclosing to his employer the fact that he's going to buy the target company stock for a personal benefit. He doesn't have to get their consent. He might violate some other law by uh, doing that, but he's not going to face liability for insider trading, um, even though his disclosure doesn't uh, come uh, uh, lead to him getting consent. He's just telling him, hey, I'm going to use your company's information, our company's information for a personal benefit, case of raw deal with it. And he can avoid insider trading liability in that way. So in, in those ways, the law is very confusing, at, at least in those ways. But then, as you've been hinting, hinting here, it, we the law starts to get away from this like narrow idea of of property uh, of the corporation that's being misappropriated in one way or another. And an example of this goes back to the 1980s. There's a, a famous uh, a, a corporate raider from the 1980s, a gentleman named Ivan Bosky, who uh, ran afoul of insider trading. And if you could, like, very briefly you know, tell us a little bit what happened to, to, to Mr. Boski, because it, it's going to show us that it, the law's gotten pretty far away from uh, this idea of, of using yeah. a company's not information. Um, sometime in the 1985 or 86, I, uh, Ivan Boski, who was a relatively well-known um, investor, he is so well-known that I, I'm pretty sure the movie Wall Street is actually based on um, but Michael Douglas's character is actually based on Ivan Bosky um, in that movie, I think. And essentially, though we think of him as facing liability for insider trading, um, what he was actually accused of and pled guilty to, and so what he actually spent a year in jail for, was the idea that he failed to file a form indicating that he was working with a, another prominent investor, Michael Milken, 
to try and take over a particular company. Forget the name of the company, but the fact is Michael Milken and his clients were very openly and publicly trying to take over this company. Um, there was a bunch of back and forth because the outside investors were Milken's clients. Um, it was a hostile takeover. They didn't have the consent of the board. The board was fighting back. Um, but it was clear that they were trying to take over the company. At some point, they signed some kind of a, uh, an agreement that the Milken's clients wouldn't try to take uh, uh, purchase any more shares of the target company for a particular period of time without first uh, getting some kind of consent from the directors. Now, Bolsky comes along. He's a guy who engages in what we call arbitrage. He finds stocks that he expects are going to move, um, we, are, we say are incorrectly priced, and tries to buy them at one price so he can eventually sell them someplace else at the higher or more correct price. He, he goes to Milken to find out whether or not uh, his clients are still trying to take over this particular company, and therefore whether or not it's a good idea for him to invest in the company. And I think Milken effectively tells him, look, I think it's a good idea for you to buy that company's stock. Um, I can't tell you any more than that, but I think it's a good idea for you to buy that company's stock. Um, essentially, he does buy the company's stock and he buys a lot of it, but he doesn't simultaneously tell the world that he is now working with Michael Milken and Milken's clients in order to take over this, this target company. And in the eyes of the Securities and Exchange Commission, this was a, a, a breach of his obligations under uh, the Exchange Act of 1934, which requires that if you're going to obtain more than, say, 5% of the outstanding voting stock of a target company, you have to disclose a, a Schedule 13D, which essentially says, I'm, I have this much of the company's stock. Here's what I plan on doing with it. Here are all the parties that I'm working with to try and take over the company if that's what I'm trying to do. And so because they didn't include Bosky on that list of people who was who were a part of it, Bosky is, is, is accused of violating federal securities law. He goes to jail for a year. He's fined $100 million. Milken simultaneously offered the same thing as accused of several other securities violations. And, and so therefore, in that case, we sort of see, like, again, uh, Bosky and Milken were trying to take over a company. They didn't actually work for it. So they, they couldn't, you know, they-, they Milken and a second party were trying to take over a company. Bosky just tried to find out, right. should I go along for the ride? Yeah. Um, and because of the very vague conversation that he had with Michael Milken about whether or not he should go along for the ride, um, he is described by the Securities and Exchange Commission as becoming Milken's essentially his business partner. They weren't business partners. Um, and so it, 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 it kind of, what, what one court described as being the problem, the wrong thing about Bosky being able to um, participate in that deal in that way is the idea that he almost gained risk-free profits. Mm -hmm. Because if he knows that some attempted takeover is coming before other people know that the takeover is coming, um, it, he, it makes it much more likely that he's going to generate profits uh, by buying and then selling the security. And for some reason, in the minds of courts, these risk-free profits are some kind of economic evil, mm -hmm. um, which I think kind of plays into a, a lot of the, the source of the conflict, which is, on the one hand, we see... Uh, fair transactions as equating to either consensual transactions, that's what usually happens under just unjust enrichment theory, but some people see fair transactions as requiring various species of economic equality, um, including either equal access to information or an equal risk of success and failure in your securities market transactions. Um, and, and having an information advantage supposedly undermines that equal risk for all market participants. And, and, and this gets into, um... I guess, as you point out, 
the, the, some of what you know, people have, commentators have described as this mess or, or this uh, confusion, uh, but it really becomes because uh, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission is, is trying to do more than simply protect the property of, of uh, the owners of a, of a company. They're going more than like sort of enforcing this uh, fiduciary duty, but rather more concerned about the, uh, the perf you know, I guess whether the market is equal or fair, or their stock markets are equal or fair in some sense, right? Yes, um, and for me, that means that they're trying, the real source of the confusion isn't just that they have competing goals, foster um, an attractive market for the average American so as to increase the amount of capital flowing into it to therefore make it easier for large businesses to come into existence and to run and therefore benefit the economy at large. Um, and they're trying to uh, put that I, that goal up against the goal of protecting the property contract and other private rights of all parties to the uh, securities markets. Um, that's the way the conflict is usually described. And people assume that the tension between protecting the private rights of individual investors and the individual companies that are issuing securities are slightly at odds with this broader goal of fostering general confidence in the securities markets because of the idea that um, so, uh, the hypothesis essentially that the average person is, is going to be turned off from investing in securities markets if they think that a whole bunch of other market participants have significant information advantages. Well, I'm convinced that, um, that I, I'm convinced that, um, that that's not the real conflict. I think the real conflict is that two, two different things. One, you have these conflicting notions of fairness. Fairness that, can, that requires consensual transactions, including informed consent when a fiduciary is going to gain a personal benefit from using his employer's information, and, and fairness that requires equal information for all market participants. Mm -hmm. And that includes non-principals, non-shareholders, um, because this the way it works is that um, if we look at, again, our Burger King case, the CEO of McDonald's is going to buy Burger King stock ahead of the announcement of a takeover. The way the law works, um, once he buys the company stock, and once the announcement is made and he sells for the profit, he's at no point in time does he become the fiduciary of either Burger King stockholders or Burger King Corporation. But because he's gained that th those profits um, with the information advantage without first telling his employer that he was going to uh, trade on the stock, the courts identify him as breaching a fiduciary obligation to his employers. And it's not just this employer that gets to sue him. There's actually some uh, a law out there that allows the former Burger King shareholders who traded around the same time and in the opposite direction of him to sue him to disgorge profits. And, and so what this means is we're, we're treating those counterparties who never become his fiduciaries as being injured by the absence of the information, but by, by the presence of his information advantage, um, as opposed to only treating the injured party as his employer who was the information owner. Um, and I'm thinking the only way that happens is if you buy into two things. One, the idea that fairness requires a certain amount of information equality or price equality, or the idea that uh, perfect markets require the elimination of information asymmetries. Mm -hmm. And now uh, there's also another source of confusion in that uh, there are more than one actor. You've mentioned the Securities and Exchange Commission, but also the federal courts make decisions and, and then Congress ultimately has it can have a say in this as well because Congress passed the Securities and Exchange uh, Act initially, and, and Congress could weigh in it, it, as well. So th that's another source of a little bit of some of the confusion here as well, isn't it? Um, but the in terms of the potential congressional source, 
Um, there's two versions of it. In the 1980s, uh, two different Congresses in 84 and 89, they passed legislation to enhance the penalties for insider trading, but they didn't define what qualifies as insider trading and just left the definition as to what exists in the case law. And as I said before, the case law both describes defendants in these cases as violating someone's property rights and information and as harming uh, counterparties to the exchange by trading with an e information advantage, which means they're simultaneously trying to enforce commitments to information equality and commitments to uh, the protection of property rights and information. You can't do both simultaneously, mm -hmm. especially when the information is this confidential information that has its value in part because it is secret. This right. Congress, and now there's this recent um, push, surprisingly popular push, bipartisan push, to now pass what's called the Insider Trading Prohibition Act. It was passed once by the House in December 2019 and passed again in this year, May 2021, 20, uh, um, with broad bipartisan support. And not, I don't think it's reached the Senate yet, but, um, or at least not been passed by the Senate yet, but there's this broad push to essentially define insider trading as wrongful trading. And there are provisions within the law that define wrongfulness as basically trading on stolen information, trading when there's a breach of a fiduciary obligation not to do so. Um, but it also adds a couple of other things that imply that they're still committed to um, a definition of wrongful that still simultaneously includes um, trading with an information advantage that the counterparties don't have. Um, because, and the reason I say that is because they don't clarify the role of consent in the law. There's a list of uh, defenses against liability, including that you're trading on behalf of the information owner for the information owner's benefit, but they don't say whether or not consent of the information owner can help you to avoid liability in this new proposal. Um, and from my perspective, that's the thing you need in order to determine what definition of fairness we're working with and what kind of economic, broad economic goal we have. If, if, the, if the defense, sorry, if the consent of the information owner is a defense against liability for insider trading, then we're working with a property-based notion of fairness and that we have in the general unjust enrichment case law. But if it's not, and you're, you're still prohibited from consent, information owners are still prohibited from consenting to their, the use of their information for trading in securities markets, then we're dealing with an equal information commitment or an attempt to foster equal prices all market participants, um, and my, from my perspective, you, you therefore can't clarify the law unless you add that provision. Is consent a defense against liability or not? So I, I think you made the, a good point that it's you know, going to be a little bit more than simply defining the term. You've got to resolve these uh, conflicts. I, there's one thing I you know, picked up in uh, some of your research, and there's some people who are saying, like, well, maybe it's a good idea not to define uh, insider what constitutes insider trading too precisely because uh, there might be some issues with that. If, if you could just uh, you could uh, briefly if you could just, uh, elaborate on that a little bit because I thought that was a really interesting uh, point. Um, there's a broad commitment in, in lots of areas of administrative law to try and be flexible in our definition of what the legal violation is in order to give both enforcement officials and courts the flexibility of stopping tricky market participants from jumping through loopholes in the created by clear definitions. Mm -hmm. um, from my perspective, uh, that approach undermines our commitment to the rule of law. It, it undermines clarity about what kinds of trading behavior is lawful or not, whether you're committed to some kind of information or some other kind of economic equality, or you're committed to the protection of property rights and you, you accept the fact that protecting property rights and information means that sometimes people are gonna have information advantages and trading advantages as long as they get the consent of all the owners involved. 
Um, it, regardless of which one you're into, from my perspective, um, unless you clarify which thing you're trying to do with the law, you're putting, uh, you're not keeping it broad enough to stop loophole jumpers from jumping through loopholes. You're leaving the law confused and you're putting yourself in a position where either A, different officials will punish different things. Sometimes we'll punish trading with an information advantage. Sometimes we'll punish um, or protect, uh, the, sometimes we'll punish the, the violation of someone's property rights and information, but you never know what you're going to get. And so it leaves mm -hmm. the law too open-ended. Um, that's my perspective on it. And so clarity is uh, the better way to go if you care about the rule of law. Yeah, it does seem, I mean, I, I you know, certainly understand the point of, you know, you don't want to be too precise because then that person who's going to skirt the law knows exactly how to skirt the, the law. But I mean, it's also, yeah. as you say, problematic when you're talking about uh, the basic issue of a rule of law. I and mean, people are supposed to be able to know whether they're violating the, the law in, in their actions. And, and, and so, uh, and I think with that we will we'll need to, to wrap up there. Uh, thanks very much for, for coming on and, and, and talk about this. I think it's very helpful. And uh, thanks to all of you for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. Thank you very much. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. 